Good morning, church. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter five. To our guest, welcome to you as well. If we've never met, I'd love to meet you. You can grab me after the service. We're in Matthew chapter five as we look at what has long been recognized as one of the most significant passages in the Bible, but not necessarily one of the clearest. Matthew 5, if you're taking notes, the title of my sermon today is Christ and the Law. We'll begin here. A.J. Jacobs is a journalist in New York City who immerses himself in whatever topic he writes about. And by immerse, I mean he really does immerse. For instance, when he wanted to do a piece, when he wanted to write a piece on outsourcing, he actually recruited and hired a team of people from Bangladesh to live his life for him for a month. So he literally outsourced his life to workers in a different country. They answered his phone, they responded to his emails, they even argued with his wife for him and read his kid bedtime stories. Jacob describes this as the best month of his life. (laughs) Another time, he wanted to write on a movement of people who embrace radical honesty. So this involves never telling lies, but also saying whatever comes to mind at any given moment in any context. He decided to try this for a month. Jacob described that as the worst month of his life. Jacobs is probably most famous for another life experiment he conducted. He grew up with no religion. Actually, he says his family was officially Jewish, but he describes it like this, we were Jewish in the same way Olive Garden is Italian. So not so much. But as he grew older, he became increasingly interested in religion, and so he decided to conduct an experiment. This one was to to, uh, follow every command in Scripture but he was gonna do it for a year. He later wrote a book on it called The Year of Living Biblically. So Jacob's tried to obey all the famous commands in scripture like the 10 commandments, love your neighbor, and be fruitful and multiply, which his wife did become pregnant with twins that year. Jacob's also tried to abide by the hundreds of lesser known laws in the Old Testament, so not to wear clothes of mixed fibers, not to shave the ends of your beards, which he said, I didn't exactly know what that meant, so I just let the whole thing grow. And he even followed the command to stone adulterers. He has a crazy story about throwing pebbles at a guy. Here's a picture of Jacob's before and at the end of that year. <laughs> so Jacob's did this because he said he had a growing interest in religion, but also he says he had a growing concern about religious fundamentalism. So for example, he expressly said he was worried about people who take the Bible literally. And so the experiment was intended, at least in part, to highlight how absurd an idea it is to take the Bible literally. And isn't it interesting that a Jew would set out to disprove the Bible like that? So what do we think about this? Our denomination, Sovereign Grace Churches, recently approved a new statement of faith. We 
Worked on this for seven years. It was a gargantuan task. It was a labor of love. And in the section on scripture, here's a part of what we wrote. All of scripture is breathed out by God, being accurately delivered through various human authors by the inspiration and sovereign agency of the Holy Spirit. We therefore receive the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments as the perfect, infallible, and authoritative word of God. Goes on to say a moment later, believers, as Christians, live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we take the Bible seriously here. It is the word of God. It is perfect, infallible, and authoritative. We live, we claim, by every word in this book, and yet we don't follow every rule laid out for us in the Old Testament. Why don't we grow out our beards? Why don't we refrain from pork? Why don't we stone adulterers? Well, our text today is essential for understanding how we think about this question, how we answer it. And here Jesus teaches us his view on the law of the Old Testament. So please follow along as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is the word of God. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away or will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, may the Lord now bless the preaching of his word. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is talking, has been talking as we've been studying about the kingdom of heaven, about what it will look like when God's reign and rule comes into our life. And about what this church will look like as an embassy of his kingdom. So Jesus began with the Beatitudes, saying citizens of the kingdom are poor in, in spirit, they're humble, they're meek, they're longing for righteousness, they are merciful in heart, they're pursuers of peace. Jesus taught that those who follow him will be persecuted for their kingdom lifestyle, but that they should not withdraw because they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. They help arrest decay and brighten the day. And for Jesus' original audience, which was a Jewish crowd, they, they probably could have accepted most of this. But what would have stuck out to them is that Jesus wasn't saying anything about the Old Testament. If Jesus was talking about God's kingdom, then God's kingdom was filled with God's laws, his rules. 
especially the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the commands given to Moses to give to God's people. For a good Jew, the law was the starting place of religion. It was the starting place of the kingdom of God. But here Jesus was launching into a sermon on the kingdom and about kingdom living, and he's warning about persecution that's gonna come, and he's explaining that they're the salt and the light of the world. But Jesus, you're not talking about the law. What's your view on the law, Jesus? Where does that fit in? Isn't obeying the law that makes us salt and light. Jesus, are you minimizing the law? Jesus, are you relaxing adherence to the law? This is the context of our passage today. These Jews would have been wondering what was Jesus' view on the Old Testament is, just like us, for different reasons, would be wondering the same thing. Is it something we are to adhere to or not? What should we think of Old Testament laws and Jesus' answer, both to the original audience and to us, is if you take me seriously, then you take the law seriously. And vice versa, if you take the law seriously, then you're going to take me seriously. So we're going to look at this passage under two headings today. Uh, The first is Christ and the law, and the second is the Christian and the law. But we begin, number one, with Christ and the law. Look again with me at verse 17 here. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So let's get our terms straight here to begin with. The phrase, the law or the prophets, was common shorthand in Jesus' day for the whole Old Testament. And then in verse 18, the next verse, he'll just say the law, which was, again, another shorthand for the whole Old Testament. But there's a definite emphasis in Judaism on the actual laws in the first five books of the Old Testament. That's why the law could be summed up as the whole Old Testament. It's kind of the heart of the Old Testament for them. And by verse 19, Jesus zeroes in on those very commandments. He starts talking about relaxing and obeying the commandments. So to get this passage, we need to understand these terms. Jesus is talking about the whole Old Testament, but he has especially in view the laws of the Old Testament. And so when I'm talking about Christ and the law, I'm talking about Christ's attitude towards the whole Old Testament, but especially his attitude toward the commandments in the Old Testament. Now, twice in verse 17, Jesus insists he did not come to abolish them. The Greek word is kataluo. It occurs three other times in Matthew's Gospels, each of those referring to a prediction Jesus made uh, regarding the temple in Jerusalem, that it would be torn down stone by stone. It would be destroyed. It would be abolished. It would be kataluo. So Jesus is saying, if you think I've come to abolish the scriptures to kataluo them, to do away with them, to dismiss them, to set them aside, to unhitch you from them. No, my answer is absolutely not. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but then we ought to ask, okay, then why is there so much in the Old Testament we do not do? We don't offer sacrifices of sheep or bulls or wheat or barley. We, we do wear clothes made of different fabrics. We, some of you eat shellfish. Many of us enjoy bacon. Amen. So didn't Jesus set aside at least portions of the law? Have you ever wondered about this? 
For instance, thank you. For instance, in Mark, I'm glad somebody has. <laughs> For the rest of you, start wondering about it. For instance, Mark 7, Jesus declares all food clean now. Well, did he just abolish a law? Acts 10 and Acts 15 state that we do not have to become Jews to be Christians. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 14 says we don't have to abide by the food laws or keep the Sabbath anymore. Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 revitalize the whole temple, priestly, and sacrificial structure. So how can Jesus say he didn't come to set aside any of the Old Testament? The answer to this question is what Jesus gives us in the rest of verse 17. He says, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So to relieve the tension between Jesus' statement that he didn't come to abolish the law on the one hand, but that it would appear that he's setting parts of the law aside in other parts of his teachings and in his followers, uh, Jesus says, well, to relieve the tension of that, you have to understand that I came to fulfill them. The word fulfill here is pleruo, and it's used 15 other times in Matthew. It's, It's a a big theme in Matthew's gospel. And what it means is the law and the prophets all pointed to Jesus and he is their fulfillment. He filled up and filled out what they intended. So let's look at a couple examples. Turn back to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. And look at verse 22 and 23. Matthew writes, all this took took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So this is the most familiar way Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. He fulfilled prophecies, right? Now, look down at chapter two, verse 14 and 15. We're gonna look at three examples. So number two here, Matthew two, 14 and 15. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night. So this is Joseph. He rose and took the child, Jesus, and his mother Mary by night and departed to Egypt. An angel had just told him to do this. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, for Bible scholars, this is a really interesting uh, passage because he's quoting from Hosea chapter 11. And if you go back and you read that in context, uh, it's speaking about when God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt. I called my sons out of Egypt. So this isn't a messianic prophecy. But Matthew's point here is Jesus embodied Israel's history. Jesus embodied all of Israel's history. So Israel's leaving Egypt was in fact a prophetic event that pointed to, pointed forward to God's saving plan which came into fulfillment through Jesus. So another way Jesus fulfills the prophecies is he fulfills the prophetic events in Israel's history. And then a third way, Matthew chapter three, We've seen all these, but we're just reviewing them. Matthew chapter three, verse 15, Jesus answered him, let it be so now, he's talking to John the Baptist, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. For us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is saying, he does what scripture teaches. He fulfills the law by living out all that it requires. So from just these three examples, uh, we can see that fulfill doesn't just mean that he 
embodied certain prophecies. It means that, but more than that, it's bigger than that. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets means he brought to completion Israel's story and he brought to life the law's teachings and requirements. Jesus did this in his life. He lived out Israel's history and he, he fulfilled all that was required of her but he also fulfilled the law in his death. Because think about it, there are all these judgments laid out in the Old Testament for lawbreakers. All these curses, these anathemas uttered for those who defile the covenant. And Jesus even fulfilled all of that when he died in the place of sinners. So Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets both positively in his life, but then also negatively in his death. He fulfilled all that was required of God's people in obedience, as well as all that was required for them in their disobedience. Jesus filled up and Jesus filled out everything in the Old Testament. It maybe it could be illustrated a little like this. Some of you like old classic movies, like It's a Wonderful Life. Love It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart, he's so great, right? Yo, belting it alone. You know, you just, I gotta love Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life. And, and I like the old black and white films, but I, I'm sure you've seen, they've colorized a lot of them. Right, So they've brought color to them. They say it brings them to life. That's how they advertise it. I don't know if that's true. Maybe you like them black and white better because they're classic that way. But it's true, you can see things in color that you could not see in black and white. And for us here, the Old Testament is, is like this black and white classic movie that Jesus has come along and he's colorized it. He's, he's brought it to life. He's filled it up and filled it out. Now we can see what it really was intended to be and be about. Jesus is the embodiment of everything it was meant to be. Or, or if you prefer, you could say the Old Testament is 2D and Jesus is 3D or Jesus is 4D or XD or virtual reality or whatever they've come up with right now. The point is, Jesus did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Jesus filled it out and filled up the Old Testament. So now we have to view the Old Testament in light of him. Now, look with me at verse 18. Jesus says, for truly, the Hebrew word here would have been amen, so this is, a, this is a oath formula. Jesus is saying, uh, essentially highlighting, what I'm about to tell you is the solemn truth for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So for as long as this present world exists, Jesus says not an iota will pass from the, the, the Old Testament and its law. An iota is a Greek letter that refers to the Hebrew letter yod. Not yoda, but yod. It's a little comma above the line. One scholar estimates that there are 66,000 yodes in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, I didn't come to get rid of one of them. Not an iota, not a dot. Now this dot here refers to a, a small pin stroke that distinguishes letters uh, in Hebrew. So in English, it, it might be a little like the stroke that distinguishes a, a lowercase h from a lowercase n. You know how the line on the left side just extends a little bit higher? Well, it's like that, but it's even smaller. 
a dot, a slight hook that distinguishes human Hebrew letters. And Jesus is saying, I don't even want one of those little, little slashes, little dashes to pass away. John Calvin wrote of this passage, sooner shall heaven fall to pieces and the whole frame of the world become a mess of confusion than the stability of the law shall give away. Not an iota, not a dot, not a little yod, not the smallest pen stroke, Jesus says, have I come to get rid of. So, one takeaway from all this about Jesus' attitude, Christ's attitude towards the law, is that Jesus took the scriptures very seriously. He held it in high esteem. He didn't relax one iota or one dot. And as such, Jesus expects his followers to take the Bible very seriously too. Listen, you can't claim to love Jesus if you don't love the scriptures. You can't do it. Because you can't be taking Jesus seriously if you're not taking the scriptures seriously. You can't claim to love Jesus if you don't love the Bible. That'd be like me saying, I love my, life, my wife, but I don't like listening to her. I love my wife, but I don't like spending time with her. It makes no sense. So if you don't spend time, your own personal time, in God's word, then... Uh, I just want to push back on you a little bit here and, and say, you need to evaluate your devotion to Jesus, actually, because you may be faking it. You know, committing to him with, in word only and not in deed and in life. Uh, Jesus takes the scriptures very seriously and expects his followers to take the scriptures very seriously as well. And the other takeaway from all this is that all the scriptures, all the Old Testament, point to Jesus. He filled it out and filled it up, like we've been saying. He brought it to its intended goal. He is its full realization. He's its embodiment. This is why he's called the Word. Uh, that's the theology of this passage. And so that's going to fuel our next point here that we need to be thinking about this morning. So point number two today, the Christian and the law. The Christian and the law. Now that we've looked at Jesus' attitude toward the law, it should be pretty clear what our attitude toward it should be. And I want to highlight three things for us under this. First, Jesus expects us to interpret the law in light of him. Jesus expects us to interpret the law in light of him. So we can't just go to Leviticus and be like, well, you know what, that's just Old Testament, so it doesn't really matter anymore. No, Jesus said not an iota, not a dot will pass away. So we don't just cut out the Old Testament because it's old or because it seems archaic or because it seems weird. We don't just cut out the Old Testament. What we have to do is we have to go through an interpretive process to figure out how to understand it in light of Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament endures. Everything has something to teach us about the character or the will of God, but it all has to be seen now through the lens of Jesus fulfilling it. So that's the interpretive process we have to go through, is how do I see this now through Jesus? So for instance, let's get at what, you know, the rub of this passage is the Old Testament laws and commandments. So let's, let's get at them there. 
Let's talk about these Old Testament laws, circling back to where we begin. Why do we say some of them continue, like most of the Ten Commandments, but, but others don't, like wearing clothes of mixed fabrics and guys growing out their beards and prohibitions against bacon, which would cause an uprising, apparently. So why do we allow those things now? Well, one of the most common and attractive ways to approach the issues of continuity and discontinuity, what continues and discontinues from the Old Testament, is seen through an approach called the tripartite or the threefold division of the law. How many, just show of hands, how many has heard of the threefold division of the law? I'll tell you, it's ceremonial and civil and moral. Have you heard the law? Uh, show me that hands again, I, I looked down. I said, isn't that great? I said, show me your hands, and I looked away. <laughs> right, okay, so some of you have. Now, I'm spending some time on this because I know some of you have heard about this, and I want to, I want to dismantle it. And so I gotta spend some time on it. For those of you who have never heard of it, um, feel free to just kinda hang out here for a few minutes with us and learn something new or just read ahead in your Bible. Um, But let's talk about this for a minute. The tripartite division of the law, it's the ceremonial law, so those are the sacrifices and the the temple practices. Number two is is civil laws or the the state laws that regulated the the civil life of, of Israel. And then the third one is the moral laws. And the understanding here is that Jesus fulfilled, he fulfilled the civil and the ceremonial aspects of the law. He fulfilled them, and so they discontinued. Jesus completed them. They're done. They're no more. But that the moral law remains in effect. It continues. Why? Because God's moral will never changes. Now, that's, that's it in a nutshell, okay? Whole books have been written on it. I give it to you in a nutshell. There's a lot to commend about this approach um, and because it simplifies things. It gives you an easy way to think about stuff and process stuff. It tries to highlight uh, Jesus' fulfillment of them in many ways. So I appreciate all that, but ultimately, I don't think it works as a system. Uh, for example, here's the, here's the uh, you know, this is where it falls apart in my mind. What do you do with the Sabbath? What do you do with the Sabbath? the command to rest on the seventh day. It seems like a civil or a ceremonial law, but being one of the Ten Commandments, it's surely a part of the moral law, so does it continue or not? It's a part of the Ten Commandments. It's surely a moral law in God's mind, and yet Jesus' teachings in the gospel imply a shift on Sabbath keeping uh, that's coming, and then Paul teaches in Romans 14 and Colossians chapter two that he explicitly states that Sabbath keeping is no longer required for Christians. It's not forbidden, but it's not required. So ultimately, I think that tripartite division of the law breaks down because you can't, you can't make all these laws just fit one clean category. They're usually all twined together and some of them are kind of, is this civil and moral? It seems like both. And so I think it breaks down that way. A better way to interpret Old Testament laws is to look to Jesus as their final interpreter. That's how I'd say it. Well, what do you do with the Old Testament laws? Well, I look to Jesus as its final interpreter. If he's the fulfiller of it, then he's the final word on it. This means, yes, the ceremonial and civil aspects of the law have been fulfilled in Jesus. That's what he teaches and the New Testament teaches. So they are not binding on us anymore. And all the bacon lovers said, amen. 
But these laws are still scripture. They are God-breathed, not an iota or a dot will ever pass away from them. So they still have tremendous value in what they teach us about Jesus and about sin and about God's holiness and about how to worship him and about how to glorify God. So they have tremendous value even if they're not binding on us, but as it relates to the moral aspects of the law, yes, Jesus fulfilled them as well. He kept them perfectly and he bore their penalties like we said. So what we also find is that Jesus teaches that he fulfilled them, but he also teaches us the full intent of those laws. He's their true interpreter. So, if you've got your passage, this is exactly where Jesus is gonna go with this, right? You've got your passage over Matthew chapter five. Look at the very next passage, verse 21 and 22, right? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said in the Old Testament law, and he quotes, you shall not murder, verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus says, ah, you've heard it said, but let me tell you the true intent of that law, not just to withhold murder, but to keep you from anger in your heart. Verse 27 and 28, jump down a few verses. He says, you have heard that it was said, Old Testament law, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I tell you that everyone who looks at woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Six times Jesus does this. You have heard it said, Old Testament law, but I say to you. So you see, Jesus isn't just raising the ethical standard here. He's revealing the true intent of the moral law. He shows us the true way to understand it and obey it. So the point is, we have to interpret the law in light of Jesus and his teachings. He is their final interpreter. Therefore, we conform to the Old Testament, we conform to the law as much as we conform to Jesus' word on it. Jesus gets the final word. So that's... The Christian's attitude, number one, towards the law is we interpret it in light of Jesus. He is its final interpreter. Number two, second attitude we should have toward the law is that we take it, as we've already said, very seriously. We take it very seriously. Jesus had a high view of the law, and so must we. Again, look at verse 19. Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So, the mature Christian does not relax even the least commands of scripture. Now again, I, I think this is really interesting here. Here Jesus embraces a, a popular Jewish teaching popular Jewish understanding that there were, there were greater and there were lesser matters in the law. We see the same thing over in Matthew 23, 23, uh, a familiar passage. Jesus is denouncing scribes and Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the what? the weightier matters, greater, weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You, these you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So you've been neglecting the weightier matters, you should be doing those and the lesser matters that I was teaching, or that you do. 
So you see Jesus is embracing a discussion here between that there, or I mean a, a distinction here between weightier matters of the law and lesser matters of the law, lighter matters of the law. Jesus says that's true. The lesser matter of the laws are things like tithing your herbs, tithing your mint and your dill. These you ought to have done, Jesus says, but without neglecting the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. So maybe you have heard people insist, or maybe you've said, all sins are the same in God's eyes. All sins are the same in God's eyes. And in a sense, that's true. All sins make you guilty before a holy God. So that's true. But it's not true in the sense that I think people generally mean for it to be. Because there are worse sins than other sins. Murder is worse than anger. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Adultery is worse than lust in the heart. And so, going back to Matthew 5.19, our passage today, Jesus' point here is he doesn't want us to relax even the least commandments. So his day, tithing your herbs matters. Our day, maybe it's the difference between tithing on your gross versus your net. Maybe it's little white lies. Anger in the heart matters. Lust in the heart matters. Watching TV shows that celebrate deeds done in darkness matters. Giving to the needy matters. Fasting in secret matters. So I think Jesus is asking you today, where are you relaxing the commandments of Scripture? Where are you relaxing Oh yeah, I do this, this, that. Now, I, see, I, our tendency is the opposite of the Pharisees a lot of the time. I get the big ones, the lesser ones I pay a little less consequence to, a little less, a little less attention to. Of course I don't murder, I don't do any of those big ones, but I avoid the lesser ones. Where are you playing fast and loose with God's law? We don't relax these least commands, which implies we also certainly don't relax any of the greater ones either. So there's another way takeaway for us. We, he implies we don't relax the greater ones either. And friends, there is tremendous cultural pressure today to relax our grip on some of the greater commands. There's tremendous cultural pressure to compromise or to at least shut up about things like God creating us male and female, that marriage is between one man and one woman, that homosexuality is a sin, that divorce is wrong, that abortion is murder, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus doesn't want us to set aside anything in scripture. So ask yourself, where are you tempted to compromise? Where are you tempted to compromise? Or in light of our passage last week, where are you tempted to hide your light under the bushel? Jesus' followers take his word very seriously. We don't relax a grip on the least of the commandments. And then third and finally, third one we want to look at here is a Christian's attitude to the law is one of doing and teaching it. A Christian's attitude to the law is one of doing and teaching it. We see this in the second half of verse 19. Jesus says, but whoever does, or whoever does them and teaches them, 
You will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not enough to just take the law seriously. We have to be doers of the law and even teachers of it. We should all be teachers of it. I remember uh, when my dad got saved. I forgot to tell you I was going to talk about this, Dad. I hope it's okay. He went through a season where um, he wouldn't let us put any other book on the Bible, on top of the Bible. Uh, it was the Word of God. You don't bury it under other books. It goes on top of everything. And it was a way of, of honoring the scriptures, and uh, I commend my dad for that. He's always taken God's Word seriously and honors it, and I love that about my dad. But to use that as an illustration in the negative sense now, my dad, I commend for it, but to use it in a negative sense, Jesus' concern here is that we, we pay honor to it in lip. But if we really honor it, Jesus says, you really wanna honor it, you do it. You do it and you teach it. Look with me at verse 20. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about not faking righteousness, but actually making it. Not faking it, but actually making it. The Pharisees faked it. They obeyed to be seen. They were concerned with the outside of the cup, Jesus says. But Jesus' disciples don't fake righteousness. They actually make righteousness. They practice real righteousness, the kind that works itself out from the inside. So, again, ask yourself, do you care more about looking righteous or being righteous? Because the temptation to look righteous is a very strong temptation. But the righteousness Jesus cares about is real righteousness. Comes from doing his will. Carefully keeping his commandments and diligently teaching them to others. So in conclusion here, We've looked at Christ's attitude on the law, Christ in the law. We've looked at the Christian in the law, some of our attitude that we should have on it. In conclusion, though, there's one bit of business about Jesus left that we need to cover. See, back in verse 17, Jesus claimed to have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. All the Old Testament, right? We said this. This forces, though, a decision on us. Did he... Or didn't he? In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis popularized the assertion that Jesus was either, remember this, a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Here's how he said it. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. This is what they say. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Jesus did not intend to. In our passage today, Jesus makes one of those claims where we are forced to make a decision about him. Was he delusional? Was he deceptive? Or was he divine? Did Jesus perfectly adhere to the will of God? Or didn't he? Is Jesus the best and final interpreter of God's will? Or isn't he? Is Jesus all he claimed that he was, or isn't he? Did Jesus obey God's law perfectly for you, or didn't he? Did Jesus bear the punishment of the law for your disobedience, or didn't he? Today, you must decide. Jesus left you no other option. He didn't intend to. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we worship you as the true Son of God, the Word made incarnate. You are God's will, living and active, for you are God Himself. But not only are you God, you are our Savior. Um, This is the most amazing thing about you, Jesus, is that you made yourself a man so that you could live the life we should have lived and then die the death we deserve to die. And as we come into Holy Week, uh, that's what Holy Week is all about. And so I pray, Jesus, that for those here who do not know you as Lord and Savior, that you would open their eyes and give them saving faith today. And for the rest of us, Jesus, I pray that our recommitment to you, that you are the final and authoritative word in our life and on the law. And so therefore, we willingly look to you to interpret God's will for us. And we want to hear, we want to take it seriously, we want to obey. We live by every word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may stand.